God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. For you, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For the last five weeks, we have been journeying through the Epiphany season while focusing on the theme of welcome home. We have been listening to the stories of Jesus and his life and his ministry and his teaching and finding ways that we can use these teachings and ideas to build our symbolic houses of faith. We've learned that not everything Jesus taught was met with full acceptance and celebration by those he was teaching, but we have also heard stories of Jesus performing miracles and calling to the first disciples and giving us very clear instructions on what the foundation of our faith should be built on. Each and every one of these passages has helped remind us of what it means to make our home in Christ, and today's passage is no different. If we needed to find a one-chapter summary of what the ministry of Jesus looked like, Luke chapter 6 would be it. It includes so much. At the very beginning of the chapter, we hear about these tricky Pharisees who are trying to ask Jesus questions and trip him up and to force him to get himself in trouble. And then Jesus heals a man and the Pharisees try to trip him up again. Then Jesus goes to the top of a mountain to spend time with God, and he calls the rest of the disciples to follow him. This leads us to the middle of the chapter where Jesus really jumps in to teaching all those that are around him in what is known in Luke as the Sermon on the Plain. A lot of the things that Jesus shares in this sermon are similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus literally comes down from the mountaintop and he gathers with the crowd on a flat, level place. No one is higher up than anyone else. Everyone is on the same playing field. Much like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus begins this sermon on the plain with offering blessings and woes to those who are gathered. But then Jesus says, I say to you that listen. Now, there are several Greek scholars out there that think this phrase would be better translated as, I say to you who are still listening, rather than I say to you that listen, I say to you who are still listening. Now, I think I like this alternative phrasing better for a few reasons, but the main one is that Jesus isn't dumb. He's not oblivious or so wrapped up in his own world that he doesn't see what is happening in the crowd around him as he is teaching them and saying these things. He has just finished giving them a list of things that they will be blessed by, but none of them are things that the people actually want to be blessed with. If we jump back up to verses 20 through 22, we read the following. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and defame you. And then he takes it one step further and he calls out the people on the other side of the coin. People who feel like they have everything that they need in life and are very happy and content with what they have. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook either. He calls them out and tells them that just because they are living the good life now, that doesn't mean that they will find that for the rest of their lives, or that when they enter in the kingdom of heaven, they will be in the same place. I say all of this focusing on a passage that isn't our focus for today, because it is relevant and directly connected to our passage for today. 
Jesus is very aware that he has just said a whole lot of stuff that is making the people uncomfortable and mad. But instead of letting them take a minute to process and to ask questions, he just keeps moving forward. If anyone out there is still listening to me, I've got more to tell you. And then he tells us to love our enemies and to do good things for the people who hate us and to bless those who wish we were dead and to pray for those who take advantage of us. If we find ourselves on the receiving end of being slapped in the face, either literally or symbolically, we should offer the other cheek. If a few of our belongings are taken by someone, we should then give that person everything else we have. We should imagine that we are the ones that are taking advantage of somebody else and then treat them how we would want to be treated if our roles were reversed. Now, before we go any further into this passage, I want to make one thing very clear. Jesus' command to love our enemies isn't a call to allow ourselves or anyone else to be abused. Some people have interpreted this passage as saying that Jesus is justifying violence, and that could not be farther from the truth. As heartbreaking as it is, for years, the phrase, turn the other cheek, has been used as a reason why battered women should allow them, themselves to be beaten, or why minorities must put up with unjust situations. Hear me clearly say this morning, using this passage to compel an individual or a collective group to stay in an abusive situation is an abuse all of its own of the gospel. God preserves life. God loves justice and God will always stand on the side of the oppressed. And as people who love and follow God, we must do the same. Sometimes loving our enemies looks like walking away from them completely. Sometimes loving our enemies means holding them accountable for their actions. Loving our enemies doesn't mean that we allow ourselves or anyone else to be treated as anything less than a beloved child of God. So now that we know what this passage is not saying, let's talk about what it is saying. In this time period, the Roman government was controlling everything. They had a strong grip on the Jewish world, and the people that were hearing Jesus speak were constantly living in fear. Nothing was a given. Nothing was guaranteed. The only thing that they knew was that at any time, their lives could flip upside down without any warning or without any reason. And this fear was starting to seep into the subconscious thoughts and actions of the people of God and into the thoughts and actions of their leaders in the Jewish community as well. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke already, with the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus doing things that go against what they believe to be true. We read about this a few weeks ago when Jesus stood in the temple and he made the bold claim that God is bringing release to all of humanity, not just the Jewish people. Do you remember how the people of his hometown responded when he made that statement? They literally drove him to the edge of town and wanted to throw him off of a cliff because they were furious that he was trying to expand their thinking and their worldview. Maybe Jesus had a flashback to that moment, and that's why he decided to deliver this sermon from a flat level place instead from on top of a mountain. It's not hard to imagine why these opening verses of our passage would be hard for people to accept and then put into action. It's not in human nature to treat people with kindness when they treat us with hatred. And in Jesus's time, it was perfectly acceptable to retaliate if someone treated you unfairly. 
Now, there were limits to what you could do. You could only respond with retaliation that was equal to the injustice that they did to you first. So if someone stole a loaf of bread from you, you couldn't burn down their olive grove. You could steal a loaf of bread back. This mindset is based on an ancient Babylonian law that is called the Code of Hammurabi. And in a nutshell, it can be summed up as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This mindset of appropriate retaliation would have been widely accepted by the people listening to Jesus speak. But Jesus isn't condoning this way of living anymore. He doesn't say, great job, everyone, keep up the good work. No, instead, he calls them out. If we look at verse 32 and the verses following, we see Jesus say this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Do you hear what is happening here? Jesus isn't pulling his punches. He is reminding the people gathered that even sinners do the bare minimum when it comes to being a part of this culture and this society. Even sinners treat others the way that they are treated. But Jesus puts a slightly different spin on the golden rule in, six, in Luke 6, 31. Instead of saying, treat others the way you are treated, Jesus says, treat others the way you want to be treated, which is a very different perspective. Just like there was the understanding that if someone treated you unfairly, you could reciprocate with unfairness, there was also the expectation that if someone treated you with kindness, you would return the kindness to them. But Jesus is saying that we should treat everyone around us with love and prayer and goodness and blessing, no matter how they have treated us or how they will treat us in return. As part of the people of God, we can no longer draw boundaries on who gets to receive love and goodness based on how they will respond. Jesus is providing us with an ethic of generosity. We are called to plant seeds of generosity abundantly, even if we don't expect anything to grow where we've planted. As participants in the kingdom of heaven, we can afford to give abundantly and to give those from whom no positive response is expected. When we choose to live our lives from a place of generous abundance without holding back what we have to offer, even when the person standing in front of us doesn't deserve it, then and only then can we begin to break the cycles of retribution and injustice that we find in our world. The Sermon on the Plain reminds us that the coming of Christ to the world makes a difference in so many ways, but most importantly, it makes a difference in how we should respond to others. And if we, as a collective group, as the body of Christ, begin sharing this mercy with everyone we encounter, then maybe our actions will awaken a benevolent response in the hearts of those that we offer mercy to. This is the good news for us today. But we know it's good news. It's just not easy news. Jesus knows that this shift in our way of life isn't easy. He knows that it goes against everything in our human nature. But I think that's why he repeats it over and over and over again, so that we don't forget but by repeating it over and over and over again, he is also modeling how we should live it out. We should not only say and remember the things that Jesus teaches us repeatedly, but we have to do them repeatedly until the rhythm of our lives becomes so in sync with the teaching of Jesus that we can't help but change. 
It's like we're memorizing facts for a test, or maybe we're rehearsing for a play at school and we are reciting our lines over and over until we know them. This is our homework assignment that we have been given by Jesus, our teacher, to love over and over until it's all we know how to do. I don't know if any of you have watched the Netflix documentary series called Cheer. It follows a cheerleading squad in the small town of Corsicana, Texas, and they cheer at Navarro College. Navarro is a junior college in the middle of nowhere that no one would expect anything to come from it. Except this cheerleading program has won 14 national championships in the junior college division, and they have won five grand national championships, which means that they have beat every other school in the country in this nationwide competition. In the first season of the show, they are setting a goal to do their very intense and incredibly difficult and demanding routine 41 times before they go to the national championship and compete. 41 times of doing their two minute and 15 second routine in order to perfect it. In one scene, the interviewer is talking to their head coach about why they do the routine so many times, even once they know it backwards and forwards. And she says, at first, we're practicing in order to get it right, but then we keep practicing so that we can't get it wrong. Hear that again. At first, we are practicing to get it right, but then we keep practicing so that we can't get it wrong. I think one of the reasons we hear so often from Jesus that we should love those who no one else loves and to treat others better than they treat us and that our job as Christ followers is to love everyone the way God loves them is because Jesus knows that we need to hear it over and over and over and over again. We need to hear it and practice it so that we can get it right. But then we need to follow through with our actions so many times that we can't get it wrong. Remember that this is a world that the people of God are living in that was filled with fear. Fear of the Roman government, fear of the radically different way of living that Jesus is talking about, fear of the unknown. We've heard in nearly every sermon this epiphany season that we are either building houses of fear or houses of love. Jesus knows that the world that he and his followers are living in is starting to become a world that is built based on fear. He knows that a house of fear is much easier to build than a house of love. But that's not the house that God has in mind for us or for God's world. We might not be hearing this sermon from Jesus while we're sitting on a plane. We might not find ourselves living in fear because of a powerful government coming in to turn our lives upside down. And while I hope that Pastor Barrett and I offer sermons that are challenging to how we are living as a body of Christ in this community, I would be willing to bet that for the most part, we aren't saying things in our sermons that are the exact opposite of what you have been told your entire life. And yet we know that there are things all around us that fill us with fear. Some of them are individual things happening in our own spirits and minds. Some of them are personal things that are happening in our families or our friend groups or our community. And some of them are national or worldwide things that are happening all over. Or maybe we find the fear in the systems that we set up centuries ago and now realize are causing more harm than we ever imagined or intended. If we have built our, house, our lives in a house of fear, it would feel impossible to even know where to begin when it comes to making change in the world. But it's not too late. And if we start building a house that is grounded in Christ and built on a foundation of love, 
then anything is possible. And if we as a community of faith in Waynesboro joins together in building our houses together on a foundation of love, then we can create real change in our corner of the world. And then if we come together with other communities of faith who are doing the same thing, building their foundations on a house of love, then we will cause change in the state and then the nation and then the world. Imagine how much change we can all create if we joined our houses of love together and showed what it was like to be merciful, just as God is merciful. This passage is bigger than just one person who is deciding to radically love their neighbor. This passage is about a community being called to a different way of living and to respect the dignity of all people, no matter how they might treat us in return. It might be a pipe dream, and it will take hours and days and years of practicing over and over and over again until we can't get it wrong. But we have the assignment. Now all we have to do is live it.